U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. My name is Dale, and I am joined by my co-host, Stephen. Hey there, everyone. So today, we are covering the First Barbary War. Now, for clarification, that is not a war with Mattel dolls. This episode is going to be a little different since there's only a couple actual engagements. So this is going to be a lot of just what the war was about. So, let's get underway. The First Barbary War was the first of two wars fought between the United States and the Northwest African Berber Muslim states, known collectively as the Barbary states. These were Tripoli, the Algiers, which were quasi-independent entities nominally belonging to the Ottoman Empire, and the independent Sultine of Morocco. Barbary corsairs and crews from the North African Ottoman provinces of Algiers, Tunis, Tripoli, and the independent Sultanate of Morocco under the Alaut dynasty, the Barbary coast, were the scourge of the Mediterranean. Capturing merchant ships and enslaving or ransoming their crews provided the Muslim rulers of these nations with wealth and naval power. The Roman Catholic Trinitarian Order, or Order of Mathurins, had operated from France for centuries with the special mission of collecting and distributing funds for the relief and ransom of prisoners of Mediterranean pirates, according to Robert Davis. Between 1 million and 1.25 million Europeans were captured by Barbary pirates and sold as slaves between the 16th and 19th centuries. So if they were such a problem in Europe for centuries before uh, America was even a nation... Uh, why hadn't any other nations gotten involved with trying to put a stop to the piracy? The nature of piracy is hit and run. So hunting pirates has always been difficult. Mm. So these nations found it easier to just pay for their people back. And as we'll learn later, paying them to leave them alone. A tribute. They, pretty much they realized it was easier to play along with the protection racket than try and fight. You could think of these guys as the Mediterranean Mafia. Okay. Barbary Corsairs led attacks upon American merchant shipping in an attempt to extort ransom for the lives of captured sailors, and ultimately tribute from the United States to avoid further attacks, much like their standard operating procedure with the various European states. Before the Treaty of Paris, which formalized the United States' independence from Great Britain, U.S. shipping was protected by France during the Revolutionary Years under the Treaty of Alliance. Although the treaty does not mention the Barbary states in name, it refers to common enemies between both the U.S. and France, which would include the Barbary states or pirates in general. As such, piracy against U.S. shipping only began to occur after the end of the American Revolution, when the U.S. government lost its protection under the Treaty of Alliance. This lapse of protection by a European power led to the first American merchant shipping seized after the Treaty of Paris on October 11, 1784. The Moroccan pirates seized the brig Betsy. The Spanish government negotiated the freedom of the captured ship and crew. However, Spain offered advice to the United States on how to deal with the Barbary states. The advice was to offer tribute to prevent further attacks against merchant ships. The U.S. Minister to France, Thomas Jefferson, decided to send envoys to Morocco and Algeria. 
to try to purchase treaties and the freedoms of the captured sailors held by Algeria. Morocco was the first Barbary Coast state to sign a treaty with the U.S. on June 23, 1786. This treaty formally ended all Moroccan piracy against American shipping interests. Specifically, Article 6 of the treaty states that if any Americans captured by Moroccans or other Barbary Coast states docked at a Moroccan city, they would be set free and come under the protection of the Moroccan state. So America initially played along as well, under the advice of Spain. America really didn't have a choice. Between conflicts, America pretty much disbanded the Navy. Oh, okay. They would have a token fleet left to help try to protect American shipping in the waters, but it was nowhere near the size that it needed to be. So during conflict, they would increase it. But then after the conflict, they would get rid of most of the fleet. Using that Letters of Mark system that we talked about in the previous episode. Letters of Mark and also, you know, building more boats or buying more boats and crewing them. So American diplomatic action with Algeria, the other major Barbary Coast state, was much less successful than with Morocco. Algeria began piracy against the U.S. on July 25, 1785, with capture of the schooner Maria and the Dolphin a week later. All four Barbary Coast states demanded $660,000 each. However, the envoys were given only an allocated budget of $40,000 to achieve peace. Diplomatic talks to reach a reasonable sum for tribute, for the ransom of the captured sailors struggled to make any headway. The crews of the Maria and Dolphin remained in captivity for over a decade and soon were joined by crews of other ships captured by the Barbary states. That is a night and day difference between, you know, what they want and what we were willing to work with. Well, the U.S. is also a baby country. The Right. We weren't taking taxes from our citizens. So our budget, uh, the government's budget, was very, very small. I, yes, uh, revenue for the government was almost exclusively from tariffs on imports. Correct. Right? At that point? Yes. Income tax wasn't a thing until around World War I, I believe. I'm not exactly sure when it started, but yeah, at this point in time, there was no income tax. Okay. In 1795, Algeria came to an agreement that resulted in the release of 115 American sailors they held, at a cost of over $1 million. This amount totaled about one-sixth of the entire U.S. budget, and was demanded as tribute by the Barbary states to prevent further piracy. The continuing demand for tribute ultimately led to the formation of the United States Department of the Navy, which was founded in 1798 to prevent further attacks upon American shipping and to end the extremely large demands for tribute from the Barbary states. So this is when the government was like, all right, we need a permanent Navy. Various letters and testimonials by captured sailors described their captivity as a form of slavery. Even though Barbary Coast imprisonment was different from that practiced by the U.S. and European powers of the time. Barbary Coast prisoners were able to attain wealth and property, along with achieving statuses beyond that of a slave. One such example was James Lender Cathcart, who rose to the highest position as a Christian slave could achieve in Algeria, becoming an advisor to the Algerian king. Even so, 
most captives were pressed into hard labor in the service of the Barbary pirates and struggled under extremely poor conditions that exposed them to vermin and disease. As word of their treatment reached the U.S., through freed captives' narratives or letters, Americans pushed for direct government action to stop the piracy against U.S. ships. From a pragmatic standpoint, uh, if a sixth of your annual budget is going to another foreign power for uh, protection racket money, that probably isn't a wise investment in the long term when that money could be used for your own defense. That's very, very true. We're about to learn that uh, not everybody was on board with tribute. In March 1785, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams went to London to negotiate with Tripoli's envoy, Ambassador Sidi Haji Abrahamum, when they inquired, quote, concerning the ground of the pretensions to make war upon nations who had done them no injury. The ambassador replied, It was written in their Koran that all nations which had not acknowledged the prophet were sinners, whom it was the right and duty of the faithful to plunder and enslave and that every Muslim who was slain in this warfare was sure to go to paradise. He also said that the man who was the first to board a vessel had one slave over and above his share, and that when they sprang to the deck of an enemy's ship, every sailor held a dagger in each hand and a third in his mouth, which usually struck such terror into the foe that they cried out for quarter at once. So the ambassador was trying to cite religious freedom as justification for piracy? I don't know if it was religious freedom, but he was pretty much saying that per our religion, what we're doing to you is fine. Yeah, religious freedom is probably a bit uh, generous of a... Uh, well, not generous. Misuse of that term. I, I can't wait to hear what the response was to that. Jefferson reported the conversation to Secretary of Foreign Affairs John Jay, who submitted the ambassador's comments and offer to Congress. Jefferson argued that paying tribute would encourage more attacks. Although John Adams agreed with Jefferson, he believed that circumstances forced the U.S. to pay tribute until an adequate navy could be built. The U.S. had just fought an exhausting war, which put the nation deep in debt. Federal and anti-federalist forces argued over the needs of the country and the burden of taxation. Jefferson's own Democratic-Republicans and anti-navalists believed that the future of the country lay in westward expansion. With Atlantic trade threatening to siphon money and energy away from the new nation on useless wars in the old world. The U.S. paid Algiers the ransom and continued to pay up to one million per year over the next 15 years for safe passage of American ships or the return of American hostages. A $1 million payment in ransom and tribute to the privateering states would have amounted to approximately 10% of the U.S. government's annual revenues in 1800. Jefferson continued to argue for cessation of the tribute, with support rising from George Washington and others. With the recommissioning of the American Navy in 1794 and the resulting increased firepower on the seas, it became increasingly possible for America to refuse paying tribute, although by now the long-standing habit was hard to overturn. Quote, Immediately prior to Jefferson's inauguration in 1801, Congress passed naval legislation that, among other things, provided for six frigates that shall be officered and manned as the President of the United States may direct. In the event of a declaration of war on the United States by the Barbary powers, 
These ships were to protect our commerce and chastise their insolence by sinking, burning, or destroying their ships and vessels wherever you shall find them. On Jefferson's inauguration as president in 1801, Yusaf Karmali, the Pasha of Tripoli, demanded $225,000 from the new administration. Putting his long-held beliefs into practice, Jefferson refused the demand. Consequently, on May 10, 1801, the Pasha declared war on the U.S., not through any formal written documents, but in the customary of Barbary manner of cutting down the flagstaff in front of the U.S. consulate. Algiers and Tunis did not follow their ally in Tripoli. I, <laughs> I mean, war is terrible. It's never a laughing matter, but I just can't help but find that funny. He effectively was being a schoolyard bully of give me your lunch money, new kid. And Jefferson was just like, yeah, no, no, I, I want some ships instead. Yeah, I think you uh, hit the nail right on the head there. And the other three were pretty much seeing the writing on the wall, because I'm assuming it wasn't exactly a, a secret that America had been building up its navy for the past several years. Well, it's not like we had satellite imagery at the time to be able to track <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> so I don't think that would be common knowledge. Okay. But you have a standing 15-year tradition where tribute is paid. And I assume when a president, new president, comes into office, they're going to ask for extra tribute from the president as saying, bow down to me, give me your lunch money. Hmm. And when Jefferson said no, that probably made the other, the other two Barbary states in this situation take a step back and go, why did he say no? But Tripoli was like, well, I'm a bully and I'm going to say, give me your lunch money. And if not, I'm going to wreck your stuff. <laughs> so the other two, because you said Jefferson had been present for negotiations with some of these uh, ambassadors from some of these countries. Mm -hmm. So while they may not have known him by name, they at least knew him by reputation that he, this is a situation he is intimate with has knowledge on, he wouldn't be saying no if he didn't have a good reason to say no. From the Barbary perspective. Or the confidence that he could back up. Yes. That yeah. he could back up his no. So while the other two were happy to take their usual annual payment from the previous year and just like, we're going to sit this one out, go get him, Tripoli. If you fail, doesn't hurt us. If you win, great. I think it was more... Let's sit back and see what happens, because I doubt that their annual tribute would have been paid anyway. They were more, let's sit back and see how Tripoli handles this situation. And if it looks like the U.S. is more of a threat than they previously were, well, none of our guys got killed. So they're, letting, they're standing back and letting Tripoli take the bloody nose if that is what's to happen. At least that's what it seems to me. Okay. So, in response, Jefferson sent a small force to the area to protect American ships and citizens against potential aggression, but insisted that he was unauthorized by the Constitution without the sanction of Congress to go beyond the line of defense. He told Congress, quote, I communicate to you all material information on this subject, that in the exercise of this important function, confided by the Constitution to the legislator exclusively 
their judgment may form itself on a knowledge and consideration of every circumstance of weight. Although Congress never voted on a formal declaration of war, they did authorize the President to instruct the commanders of armed American vessels to seize all vessels and goods of the Pasha of Tripoli. End quote. And also to cause to be done all such other acts of precaution or hostility as the state of war will justify. The American squadron joined a Swedish flotilla under Rudolf Senderstrom in blockading Tripoli, the Swedes having been at war with the Tripolations since 1800. So, in this, the Swedes were allies of a common, because we had shared a common foe. We didn't have a uh, treaty declaring that we were buddy-buddy at the time. Right, it was more a partnership of convenience. Mm-hmm. These guys are your enemy. They're also our enemy. So right now we can be friends. Yeah, yeah, okay. On May 31st, 1801, Commodore Edward Preble traveled to Messina, Sicily, to the court of King Francis of the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. He sought help and found a good ally. The kingdom was at war with Napoleon, but Francis supplied the Americans with manpower, craftsmen, supplies, gunboats, mortar boats, and the ports of Messina, Syracuse, and Palmero to be used as a naval base to launch operations against Tripoli, a port-walled fortress city protected by 150 pieces of heavy artillery manned by 25,000 soldiers, assisted by a fleet of 10 10-gun brigs two eight-gun schooners, two large galleys, and 19 gunboats. Now, would a gunboat just be a, a ship with a single gun, or is it effectively like those picaroons that we were describing last episode, but not a barge because it has a sail? So a gunboat is a, a boat designed for the express purpose of bombarding coastal targets. It only has one or two guns. It's a small boat for land bombardment. Okay. They, they're also used for ferrying troops and supplies. So they're small, fast boats. But not intended for sea-on-sea engagements, intended for ground support from the water. Correct. Okay. The schooner, USS Enterprise, she was commanded by Lieutenant Andrew Steddert, defeated the 14-gun Tripolation Corsair Tripoli after a fierce but one-sided battle on August 1st, 1801, and we'll be covering that battle very soon. In 1802, in response to Jefferson's request for authority to deal with the pirates, Congress passed, quote, an act for the protection of commerce and seamen of the United States against the Tripolation cruisers, authorizing the president to employ such of the armed vessels of the United States as may be judged requisite for protecting effectively the commerce and seamen thereof on the Atlantic Ocean, the Mediterranean, and adjoining seas. The statute authorized American ships to seize vessels belonging to the Bay of Tripoli, with the captured property distributed to those who brought the vessels into port. So again, we have the crews being paid for the sale of captured vessels. So this, again, not an official declaration of war, and it being the early 19th century. Quick communication, crossing the ocean is not a thing. All they were saying to Jefferson was, you can give the order for them to head over there, and it's A-OK for them to be the aggressors. Not exactly. 
there has been a declaration of war on the Tripoli side. What Jefferson yes. was given permission to do was to defend. Ah. So it seems to be interpreted rather loosely as a... Aggressive defense? As preemptive defense. Okay. The U.S. Navy went unchallenged on the sea, but still the question remained undecided. Jefferson pressed the issue the following year with an increase in military force and deployment of many of the Navy's best ships in the region throughout 1802. The USS Argus, Chesapeake, Constellation, Constitution, Enterprise, Intrepid, Philadelphia, and Siren all saw service during the war under the overall command of Commodore Edward Preble throughout 1803. Preble set up and maintained a blockade of the Barbary ports and executed a campaign of raids and attacks against the city's fleets. So now we're going to get into the Battle of August 1st, 1801, which was uh, between the USS Enterprise and the Tripolation Polaka Tripoli off the coast of modern-day Libya. So following the recognition of the independence of the United States in 1783, the new country's early administrations had elections to make tribute payments of the Vyat of Tripoli to protect American commercial shipping interests in the Mediterranean Sea. Tripoli, nominally a subject of the Ottoman Empire, was practically autonomous in conducting her foreign affairs and would declare war on non-Muslim states whose ships sailed in the Mediterranean in order to extract tribute from them. In 1801, payments demanded by Tripoli from the United States were significantly increased. The newly elected administration of Thomas Jefferson, an opponent of the tribute payments, from their inception refused to pay. As a result, Tripoli declared war on the United States and its navies began to seize American ships and crews in an attempt to coerce the Jefferson administration into acceding to their demands. When words of the attacks on American merchantmen reached Washington, D.C., the Jefferson administration gave the United States Navy the authority to conduct limited operations against Tripoli as part of the American strategy to a squadron under Commodore Richard Dale was dispatched to blockade Tripoli. By July 1801, Dale's force had begun to run low on water. In order to replenish his supplies, Dale dispatched the schooner USS Enterprise, commanded by Lieutenant Andrew Steddart, to provision at the British naval base at Malta, while the Commodore himself remained off Tripoli with his frigate USS President to maintain the blockade. Soon after leaving the blockade, Enterprise came upon what appeared to be a Tripolation cruiser sailing near her. Flying British colors as a ruse, the Enterprise approached the Tripolation vessel and hailed her. The Tripolation answered that she was seeking American vessels. At this, the Enterprise struck the British colors, raised the American flag, and prepared for battle. When in doubt, British colors. As you learned all about last episode, I told you this was common. <laughs> The Tripolation vessel, Tripoli, and the Enterprise were quite evenly matched. Enterprise with a complement of 90 was a 12-gun, 135-ton schooner built in 1799 that had seen action in the Quasi-War. In contrast, Tripoli, a lanteen-rigged Polaka with two masts, was crewed by 80 men under Admiral Reyes, Mohammed Rus, and armed with 14 guns. Although the Tripolations had a slight advantage in firepower, Enterprise had to its advantage the larger crew and the element of surprise. The Americans were also significantly more experienced in gunnery action than the Tripolations, who preferred to attack by boarding and taking over their opponent's ship. Shortly after Staddart had the American colors raised, 
he had his men open fire upon the Tribulations at close range with muskets. In response, Tripoli returned fire with an ineffective broadside. The Americans returned fire with their own broadsides, which led Rouse to break off the engagement and attempt to flee. Neither able to fight off the American vessel nor outrun her, the Tripolations attempted to grapple Enterprise and board her. Once within musket range, Enterprise Marines opened fire on the Tripoli, foiling its boring attempt and forcing Tripoli to break away once more. Enterprise continued the engagement, firing more broadsides into the Tripolation and blasting a hole in her hull. Severely damaged, Tripoli struck her colors, and as Enterprise moved towards the vessel to accept its surrender, the Tripolations hoisted their flag and fired upon Enterprise. The Tripolations again attempted to board the American schooner, but were repelled by Enterprise's broadsides and musketry. After another exchange of fire, the Tripolations struck their colors a second time. Stedert once more ceased fire and moved closer to Tripoli. In response, Rouse again raised his colors and attempted to board Enterprise. Enterprise's accurate gunnery once more forced Tripoli to veer off. As the action continued, Rouse feigned a third surrender in an attempt to draw the American schooner within grappling distance. This time, Stedert kept his distance and ordered Enterprise's guns to be lowered to aim at its waterline, a tactic that threatened to sink the enemy ship. The next American broadsides struck their target, causing massive damage, dismasting her mizzenmast and reducing her to a sinking condition. With most of his crew dead or wounded, the injured Admiral Rouse finally threw the Tripolation flag into the sea to convince Stuttert to end the battle. So, this is a classic example of fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me thrice, well, now I'm going to be sinking you. Yeah. Oh, you're giving up. We'll take your surrender. Oh, you're not giving up. We will fire on you. Oh, you're giving up again. Okay. Well, we've been a little bit more cautious this time. Oh, you're firing us at us again. Well, we're going to hole you below the waterline and sink you. Oh, you just threw your flag into the water. That means you can't raise your colors again. So we'll take your surrender. <laughs> um, and then another question, kind of on the logistics end. Uh, so back in the day, were, I suppose the quartermaster would be the person who would be responsible for... Uh, supply acquisition, did they just keep a a checkbook on board? You know, this note is sponsored by the United States government, please give us water. Or was it IOUs? Or were there just kind of, as long as as we weren't at war, if I ask for supplies, you give them, we'll work out the details later. It was a deal between governments. It was, hey, we need this charge the U.S. for this, or the Brit- British would be like, hey, we need this, charge the U.K. for this. And a lot of times they'll also have petty cash. Okay. So, at the end of the battle, Triple I was severely damaged. 30 of her crew were dead, and another 30 were injured. The ship's first lieutenant was among the casualties, and Admiral Rouse himself was injured in the fighting. In what amounted to a total American victory over the Tripolations, Enterprise had suffered only superficial damage and no casualties. Stedert, whose orders did not give him the authority to retain prizes, let the ship limp back to Tripoli. However, before setting her free, the Americans cut down Tripoli's masts and sufficiently disabled her so that she can barely make sail. 
Stedert then continued his journey to Malta and picked up the supplies for which he was sent before returning to the blockade. I, I would just love to have been there for that conversation. So, how did the errand run go? Oh, great, great. Yeah, here's the water. Also, we completely disabled a ship. Well, okay. Yep. Was it a Tripoli ship? Yep. Well, now you're making me look bad. Probably more great job than making me look bad. Because <laughs> the, uh, at, the Commodore would take credit for it anyway. Ah, of course, of course. Yeah. It was his stellar leadership, despite being miles away. Praise goes uphill, not downhill. Ah, uh, okay. I've worked at plenty of places like that, so I get the sentiment. Yes. So after Enterprise left, Tripoli began its journey back to the port of Tripoli. On the way, it ran into USS President and asked for assistance. Rouse falsely claimed that his vessel was Tuncean, and that it had been damaged in an engagement with a French 22-gun vessel. Dale suspected the vessel's true identity and merely provided Rouse with a compass so he could find his way back to port. When he finally arrived at Tripoli, Rouse was severely chastised by Yusuf Kermanali, the ruler of Tripoli. Stripped of his command, he was paraded through the streets draped in sheep's entrails while seated backwards on a jackass before suffering 500 bastinados. Is that the Tripoli equivalent of cat nine tail lashes, or...? Well, it that's close. It's when you get caned in the feet. On your feet. Ooh. The soles of your feet. Oh. Not, not a good day. You wouldn't be walking for a while. At least you already had the jackass to get him around? That might have been taken away afterwards. Oh, that's just cruel. So Enterprise's victory over Tripoli had very different consequences for the two nations involved. In Tripoli, the defeat, combined with the severity of the Rouse punishment, severely hurt morale throughout the city and led to significant reductions in recruitment for ships' crews. In the United States, the exact opposite occurred. With wild publicity surrounding the arrival of news that the Americans had won their first victory over the Tripolations, the American government gave a month's pay as a bonus to each of Enterprise's crew member and honored Stedert by granting him a sword and calling for his promotion. Fanciful plays were written about the victorious Americans and morale and enthusiasm about the war reached a high point. The victory did not have any long-term consequences in the conduct of the war, however. Dale's blockade of Tripoli was ineffective in preventing the ships from entering and leaving the port and was equally ineffective in altering the Pasha's diplomatic stance towards the Americans. Dale's squadron was relieved in 1802 by another under Richard Morris, and the war was continued until 1805. I mean, props to the guy for sticking to his guns, but if you have two countries that have significant naval presence right on your doorstep, and then one of your captains just got home and the ship was literally held together by some duct tape and a prayer and probably what little crew remaining pumping the water from below decks. Maybe time to reassess? More than likely, his beliefs and attitude was upheld by his religious beliefs. It seems to me that he believed this was his God-given right to do. So, to him, this, for uh, a more European-centric equivalent. This would be like asking a crusader to stop going into the Middle East to trying to take Jerusalem. Right. In this case, it would be like 
please stop engaging in pirate activities in the Mediterranean Sea. Right. They held the belief that what they were doing was just, was right, and any other way is not acceptable. Okay. So the next battle is the first battle of Tripoli Harbor, which was fought on May 16th, 1802, in Tripoli Harbor, between a combined force consisting of the American frigate USS Boston and two Swedish Navy frigates against several Tripolian Barbary Corsairs. The USS Boston, or Captain McNeil, had been sent to Tripoli to blockade the port and prevent any ships from entering or leaving. Leaving for Tripoli in January, she discovered that four Swedish ships had already begun a blockade of the port. Along with the Swedish vessels, she attempted to chase down Corsairs attempting to break the blockade with little success, as the Swedish vessels were quite large and cumbersome, making it difficult for them to pursue the small Tripolian galleys that darted in and out of the port's harbor. On May 16, Boston, with the Swedish frigate Froja, managed to chase down a Tripolian Corsair, disabling it by forcing it to beach itself. Six other Corsairs then sortied from the harbor in an attempt to screen the first one. The American and Swedish frigates managed to deter their attempts until another ship arrived into the harbor. The Swedish frigate began bombarding the harbor fortifications, while Boston left to meet the new vessel. This gave the Corsairs an opportunity to make another attempt at assisting the beached vessel. Shortly thereafter, Boston realized that the newly arrived ship was merely another Swedish frigate. Realizing his mistake, Captain McNeil turned his ship around and engaged the Tripolation ships once more, firing several broadsides into them and damaging several. The battle then concluded with the three frigates resuming their blockade stations, having taken no damage while inflicting several losses on the enemy. The battle did little to prevent the Corsairs from using Tripoli as a base of operations. Besides this battle, no other serious attempt was made by the blockading squadron to enforce the blockade. The USS Constellation later arrived to bluster the attempt at denying the harbors used by the Tripolations. The Swedish decided to make their own peace with Tripoli, leaving the two American frigates to enforce the blockade themselves. But the Americans soon ran short of provisions and also withdrew, thereby lifting the blockade and leaving the port open to the enemy. So we're seeing more of a theme here. The pirates are very good at taking merchant vessels that don't fight back. But once up against actual naval vessels, they're getting their butts handed to them. Well, and that is usually uh, pretty consistent with piracy, isn't it? Where, you know, civilian merchants can easily be intimidated. You know, you give them one good broadside, take out uh, a mast or some rigging, show up with three daggers when you only have two hands. And suddenly they're like, yes, uh, the hold is this way. Uh, could we please have enough supplies to make it back to port. Oh, you were slaves now. Cool. Okay. Um, could we have enough supplies maybe to not starve or die of thirst before we get to port? Cool. The Battle of June 22nd, 1803 was a naval battle between the United States Navy and the Tripolation Navy. Two ships from the American squadron blockading Tripoli, the USS John Adams and the USS Enterprise met and engaged at Tripolation Pole Acre along with nine gunboats. After fighting the battle for 45 minutes, the gunboats veered off and the Pole Acre was abandoned. The Tripolations later retook the Pole Acre and were re-engaged by the Americans before the vessel was destroyed in a large explosion. So, the large explosion, it, like you said, they retook it. And earlier you said 
that American sailors were not allowed to take enemy ships as prizes in this conflict. What I said was that that specific, in that specific battle, he had no orders to take a prize. His orders were to go get resupplied. Ah, okay. I was a little confused by that, and then I thought maybe I misheard you the first time. They were taking prizes, taking them into port, selling them off, and their crews were getting paid. Yeah, okay. So, American sailors hopped on this. We're trying to take it as prize. Tripolians, Tripolations, uh, showed up, took it back. But before abandoning, yielding the ship to the Tripolations, American sailors probably sabotaged something, which led to the explosion. So, the Americans probably hadn't boarded her to take her yet. By the time the Tripolians had come back to retake the vessel, the Americans opened fire on her again, the explosion probably happened due to getting, due to a round hitting the powder storage. Which is the one spot you really don't want your ship to be hit, I imagine. No, that will, that normally ends in a large explosion. A big bada boom. <laughs> so the destruction of the Tripolation Pole Acre was the greatest victory the American Navy had yet inflicted over the Tripolations. As such, the confidence and morale of the American Mediterranean squadron ran so high that his commander saw no further need to blockade Tripoli and withdrew his vessels. Now, the second battle of Tripoli Harbor was a battle during another naval blockade which took place in 1804. Commodore Edward Preble had assumed command of the U.S. Mediterranean squadron in 1803. By October of that year, Preble had begun a blockade of Tripoli Harbor. The first significant battle of the blockade came on October 31st, when the USS Philadelphia ran aground on an uncharted coral reef, and the Tribulation Navy was able to capture the ship along with its crew and Captain William Bainbridge. The Philadelphia was turned against the Americans and anchored in the harbor as a gun battery. On the night of February 16, 1804, a small contingent of U.S. Marines in a captured Tribulation catch rechristened USS Intrepid and led by Lieutenant Stephen DeCanter Jr., were able to deceive the guards on board the Philadelphia and float close enough to board the captured ship. DeCanter's men stormed the vessel and decimated the Tripolation sailors standing guard. To complete the daring raid, DeCanter's party set fire to the Philadelphia, denying her use to the enemy. DeCanter's bravery in battle made him one of the first American military heroes since the Revolutionary War. The British Admiral Horatio Nelson himself known as a man of action and bravery, is said to have called this, quote, the most bold and daring act of the age. Even Pope Pius VII stated, quote, the United States, though in their infancy, have done more to humble the anti-Christian barbarians on the African coast than all the European states had done. Wow. High marks. Yes. Now, just so I'm clear, um, when... The pirates had captured the Philadelphia. Were they able to get it off that coral reef, or were they using it as a gun battery because it was still on the uh, reef? More than likely, they were using it as a gun battery because they couldn't get it off the reef. Okay, because my, my first thought was, why, why not take it back? That's a good ship right there. But if it's, you know, stuck, you do what you gotta do to get rid of some cannons. Also, if they don't have enough men to actually sail her, they can't move her anyway. 
The goal, I believe, was just to end the threat of a gun battery against U.S. forces. All right. Preble attacked Tripoli outright on July 14, 1804, in a series of inconclusive battles, including a courageous but unsuccessful attack by the fireship USS Intrepid under Master Commandant Richard Somers. Intrepid, packed with explosives, was to enter Tripoli Harbor and destroy itself and the enemy fleet. It was destroyed, perhaps by enemy guns, before achieving that goal, killing Somers and his crew. The actions against Tripoli Harbor continued to prove indecisive until September, when Commodore Samuel Barron assumed command of the Mediterranean Squadron and focused the fleet's attention on supporting William Eaton's attack on Dern, which ended in a victory. The Battle of Derna at Dern was the decisive victory in April to May of 1805 of a mercenary army recruited and led by United States Marines under the command of U.S. Army Lieutenant William Eaton, diplomatic consul to Tripoli, and a U.S. Marine Corps First Lieutenant Presley Neville O'Bannon. So, in 1804, the former consul to Tunis, William Eaton, returned to the Mediterranean Sea with the title of Naval Agent to the Barbary States. Eaton had been granted permission from the United States government and third president, Thomas Jefferson, to back the claim of Hammett Carmonelli, who was the rightful heir to the throne of Tripoli and had been disposed by his brother, Yarsif Carmonelli. Yarsif had assassinated his older brother by shooting him in front of his mother. Yarsif was out of the country at the time and decided to remain away in exile. Upon his return to the area, Eaton sought out Hamlet Carmali, who was in exile in Egypt. Upon locating him, Eaton made a proposal to reinstate him on the throne. The exile agreed to Eaton's plan. Commodore Samuel Barron, the new naval commander in the Mediterranean Sea, provided Eaton with naval support from several small warships of the U.S. Navy's Mediterranean Squadron. The USS Nautilus, commanded by Oliver Hazard Perry, USS Hornet under Samuel Evans, and USS Argus, captained by Isaac Hull. The three vessels were to provide offshore bombardment support. A small detachment of U.S. Marines was given to Consul Eaton, commanded by First Lieutenant Presley Neville O'Bannon. Eaton and O'Bannon based their operations at Alexandra, Egypt. With the help of Hamlet Karmali, they recruited about 400 Arab, Turkish, and Greek mercenaries. Eaton became self-appointed general and commander-in-chief of the combined multinational force. So I'm not sure if you knew this or not, but in uh, the Ottoman Empire, uh, fratricide was actually a fairly common tactic during succession. It was practiced all over the world. If you had a kingdom, you're going to get assassinated. Oh no, like I, I mean, like say the Sultan had three sons. Only one of them was coming out alive once dad died. Yeah, that happened everywhere. Oh, oh. Russia was huge into that. It became so widespread and so common to become the Tsar of Russia, you did not want to. <laughs> the Tsars regretted becoming Tsars. They were afraid to become huh. Tsars. Like, I, I know in the grand scheme of things, especially when you're dealing with... Uh, when you're dealing with monarchies, you know, a little bit of uh, sibling killing or family killing isn't the most uncommon. But uh, stuff I've read and heard 
uh, from documentaries makes it seem like the uh, the Ottomans were much more into it than everyone else. But so everybody was pretty into it. They just get the bad rep because they were not European as much as uh, the primary European powers. Depends on which history you're concentrating on. Excellent point. Bias is everywhere. Also, I don't know if you realize this, but most royal families were almost 100% inbred. Oh. So they were not the most stable people in the first place. <laughs> uh, I, I, I forget which uh, Holy Roman ruler it was with the absolutely meme-worthy chin. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, the, the man who was literally the crimson chin from Fairly Odd Parents in real life. It's, yeah, it's, it's on the tip of my tongue. Very, very recognizable, very, very well-known. I, I just, I just don't remember. Yeah. That's okay. Well, this is the U.S. Navy History Podcast. If, if you folks want to learn about the incestuous relations of monarchs, I'm sure there's a podcast out there, and I'm sure they have a whole season dedicated to the Ptolemies. All right, so on March 6th, 1805, Lieutenant Eaton, having grandly designated himself as general and commander-in-chief, began to lead his force on a 500-mile trek westward to the Libyan North African desert from Egypt. Their objective was the port city of Derni, capital of the Ottoman Empire, province of Serenia, in eastern modern Libya. The mercenary forces were promised supplies and money when they reached the city. During the 50-day trek... Eden became worried over the strained relationship between the Greek, Orthodox Christian Greeks and the roughly two to three hundred Muslim, Arab, and Turkish mercenaries. The expedition's supplies were dwindling, with Eaton reporting in 1805 that, quote, Our only provisions are a handful of rice and two biscuits a day. At one point, some of the Arabs in the expedition made a desperate attempt to raid the supply wagon, but were beaten back by the Marines and a few Greek artillerymen who used the expedition's lone cannon, mutiny, continuously threatened the success of the expedition on several occasions. Between March 10th and March 18th, several Arab camel drivers mutinied before reaching the sanctuary of the Masua Castle. From March 22nd to March 30th, several Arab mercenaries under the command of Sheikh el-Tahib staged mutinies. By April 8th, when he crossed the border into Libya, slash Tripoli, Eden had quelled the Arab mutinies. In late April, his army finally reached the port city of Bomba, on the Gulf of Bomba, some miles up the coast from Derny, where U.S. Navy warships Argus, Nautilus, and Hornet, with Commodore Byron and Captain Hull, were waiting for him. Eden received fresh supplies and the money to pay his mercenaries. Well, if there's one lesson that is always taught in history, pay your mercenaries. It won't go well for one party or the other if you don't. Well, he did. He promised to pay them upon their arrival, and he did. Right, right. Some people just get impatient. No, the whole tension thing was religious. Okay. It sounded like supplies were getting low. Oh, and supplies were getting low, and that only raised tensions. Exactly. The difficulty started with religion, and... Tight rations only made it worse. Right. Hanger strikes again is the real problem then. Yes, they were all hangry. On the morning of April 26th, 
Eaton sent a letter to Mufasta Bey, the governor of Dern, of Derny, asking for safe passage through the city and additional supplies. Though Eaton realized the governor probably would not agree, Mustafa reportedly wrote back, My head or yours. On the morning of April 27th, Eaton observed a fort in Derny with eight guns. He believed the majority of the population would prefer to be ruled by Hamet. The brig USS Argus sent a cannon ashore to use in the attack. Captain Hull's ships then opened fire and bombarded Derny's batteries for an hour. Meanwhile, Eaton divided his army into two separate attacking parties. Hamet was to lead the Arab mercenaries southwest to cut the road to Tripoli, then attack the city's left flank and storm the weakly defended governor's palace. Eaton, with the rest of the mercenaries and the squad of marines, would attack the harbor fortress. Hull and the ships would fire on the heavily defended port batteries. The attack began at 1445, with Lieutenant O'Bannon and his marines leading the advance. O'Bannon led his marines and 50 Greek gunners with the field piece from the Argus. Though the gun's effectiveness was lessened after the firing crew carelessly left the ramrod in the tube and fired it downrange. The harbor defenses had been reinforced and the attackers were temporarily halted. But this had weakened the defenses elsewhere and allowed the Arab mercenaries to ride unopposed into the western section of the city. So that cannon crew spiked their own cannon? Not spiked, but they made a mistake on a volatile weapon. And now that they don't have a ramrod, they cannot operate that cannon effectively. Okay. The ramrod is used to... The, the order of operations for a cannon is... First, you put a wad in. Second goes in the gunpowder with another wad. Third goes the cannonball. And each one has to be packed down tightly. And then, if you're at sea, a lot of times we'll put another wad in after the cannonball so the cannonball doesn't roll out while the ship is riding the waves. Then fire is introduced to the vent, which ignites the gunpowder, which propels the cannonball out. Now, you shoot the ramrod out with the cannonball. Now you don't have the ramrod, so you cannot tightly pack your wads, your gunpowder, your other wads, and the cannonball. And without that, there's a bigger chance of it just exploding in your face. Instead of making everything nice and tightly compacted like you would a bullet, because at the end of the day, a bullet is just a, all this whole process inside of a nice tiny container. This the cannonball is just a big bullet. Yeah. Musket balls were the exact same thing, only on a smaller scale. Right, right. So they effectively turned their ramrod into a very, very powerful javelin for one shot, if it didn't just splinter immediately. More than likely it was splintered immediately. But if anything did survive, yeah, little tiny arrows, or a big, huge arrow. Eaton's mercenary army was hesitant under the enemy's musket fire, and he realized the charge was the only way to regain the initiative. Leading the charge, he was seriously wounded in the wrist by a musket ball. On the Argus, Captain Hall saw the American and mercenaries were Quote, gaining ground very fast through a heavy fire of musketry was constantly kept upon them. The ships ceased fire to allow the charge to continue. Eaton would report that O'Bannon and his marines and Greeks passed through a shower of musketry from the walls of houses, took possession of the battery. 
the defenders fled in haste, leaving their cannons loaded and ready to fire. O'Bannon raised the American flag over the battery and Eaton turned the captured guns on the city. Hammett's force had seized the governor's palace and secured the western part of the city. Many of the defenders of the harbor fortress fled through the town and ran into Hammett's force. By 1600, the entire city had fallen, and for the first time in history, an American flag flew over fortifications on the opposite side of the Atlantic Ocean. According to Tucker, casualties during the fighting for the Americans were two killed and three wounded, while those among the Christian Greek mercenaries were nine killed or wounded. Muslim Turkish army mercenary casualties are unknown, as are those of the defenders. Yusuf, in Tripoli to the west, was aware of the attack on Derny and had sent reinforcements to the city. By the time this force arrived, however, the city had fallen. His men dug in and prepared to recapture the city. Eaton's fortified his new position, while Hammett took up residence in the governor's palace and had his Arabs patrolling the outer areas of the city. Yusuf's men dug into the south of the city and waited. On May 13th, they attacked the city and drove Hamet's Arabs back, almost recapturing the governor's palace. USS Argus and Eaton's captured batteries pounded the attackers who finally fled under heavy fire. Nightfall found both sides back in their original positions. Skirmishes and several other minor attempts were made on the city in the following weeks, but the city remained in American control. From Derny, Eaton now planned to march across the desert and attack Tripoli from the land. During his march, he was informed of the treaty signed on June 10, 1805, between American emissary Tobias Lear from the U.S. Department of State and Yusuf Karmanali. In the middle of his trek, Eaton was ordered to return to Egypt with Hammett. So, the brother that was in exile did not end up in power? No, because the U.S. and Yusuf was able to come to a peace agreement. So the Battle of Derny was the first land battle of the United States on foreign soil after the American Revolutionary War. It was a decisive action to the First Barbary War, though Eaton was furious over what he called a sellout between the State Department diplomat Tobias Lear and the Bay. Hamlet returned to Egypt, and the mercenaries were never fully paid. William Eaton returned to the United States as a national hero. Legend holds that O'Bannon was presented a Marmaluke sword by Hamlet, the Ottoman Empire Viceroy. No evidence supports this claim, however. The first mention of Hammett giving O'Bannon a bejeweled sword seems to be in a lengthy article, Kentucky Officer First to Carry Stars and Stripes to Victory in Foreign Country, by John Parsley Kane, in the July 29, 1917 edition of the Louisville Courier-Journal. One sword that was reputed to be the sword in question turned out to be a late Victorian-era forgery. He was later awarded a sword of honor by his home state of Virginia, a further legend holds that O'Bannon's exploits in North Africa inspired the Marine Corps' officers to adopt Marmaluke's sword. But this was also uncorroborated by any contemporary sources. Swords of this style were very popular in Europe, and a more likely scenario is that the Marines were imitating the influential military leaders who were wearing them. The attack on Derna was the inspiration for the lyrics of the Marines' hymn in the line, To the Shores of Tripoli. The 1950 American film, Tripoli, starring John Payne, Maureen O'Hara, Howard De Silva, is a fictionalized account of the Battle of Derny. Wearied of the blockade and raids, and now under the threat of a continued advance on Tripoli proper and a scheme to restore his deposed brother, Yusuf Karmanali, signed a treaty ending hostilities on June 10, 1805. 
Article 2 of the treaty reads, The Barshaw of Tripoli shall deliver up to the Americans, squadron now off Tripoli, all the Americans in his possession, and all the subjects of the Barshaw of Tripoli, now in the power of the United States, shall be delivered up to him. And as the number of Americans in possession of the Bashaw of Tripoli amounts to 300 persons, more or less, and the number of Tripolano subjects in the power of the Americans to about 100 more or less, the Bashaw of Tripoli shall receive from the United States of America the sum of $60,000 as a payment for the difference between the prisoners Heron mentioned. So, in agreeing to pay a ransom of $60,000 for the American prisoners, the Jefferson administration drew a distinction between paying tribute and paying ransom. At the time, some argued that buying sailors out of slavery was a fair exchange to end the war. William Eaton, however, remained bitter for the rest of his life about the treaty, feeling that his efforts had been squandered by the State Department's diplomat, Tobias Lear. Eaton and others felt that the capture of Derna should have been used as a bargaining chip to attain the release of all American prisoners without having to pay ransom. Furthermore, Eaton believed the honor of the United States had been compromised when it abandoned Hampsett Kamarali, after promising to restore him as leader of Tripoli. Eaton's complaints generally fell on deaf ears, especially as attention turned to the strained international relations which would ultimately lead to the withdrawal of the U.S. Navy from the area in 1807 and to the War of 1812. The First Barbary War was beneficial to the military reputation of the U.S. American Military Command and War Mechanism, which had been up to that point relatively untested. The First Barbary War showed that America could execute a war far from home, and that America forces had the cohesion to fight together as Americans rather than separately as Georgians or New Yorkers. The United States Navy and Marines became a prominent part of the American government and American history. Andy Cantor returned to the U.S. as its first post-revolutionary war hero. However, the more immediate problem of Barbary piracy was not fully settled. By 1807, Algiers had gone back to taking American ships and seamen hostage. Distracted by the preludes to the War of 1812, the U.S. was unable to respond to the provocation until 1815 with the Second Barbary War, in which naval victories over Commodores William Bainbridge and Stephen Decanter led to treaties ending all tribute payments by the U.S. So what ultimately happened to the older brother? Did he just kind of fall off uh, the history books after this, or did we uh, bring him back to the United States as hey, we weren't able to put you back in power, but come with us and we doubt your brother will send assassins over the Atlantic. More than likely, he was just sent back in exile, but I have no information on him other than, okay, we didn't put you back in power. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> well, that was the bar first Barbary War. Yeah, uh, before this recording, all I really knew about it was... That that one line from the Marine song talked about Tripoli. Uh, and yeah, it, it was uh, North African pirates versus U.S. Navy. With some Norwegians and Swedes mixed in. Yep, never heard about them until today. Never heard about mercenary forces until today. I knew the Marines came in clutch towards the end of the war. But... It was very broad strokes knowledge that I had, and none of it was from any sort of history class. It was from I some book I found on a library shelf as a kid. Definitely not one I remember ever hearing about in school. That's becoming a theme with you. <laughs> well, 
Well, it's like, dang, Nabbit, I took AP American History. I expect to hear about obscure stuff in American history. And I can only assume we don't talk about it in a lot of history courses because it starts out with us, like, essentially paying the North African mob for about 10, 15 years. Yeah. I, I can't tell you why it's not in there. So, I mean, you got to come to me to, to learn all the cool stuff. Well, yeah, yeah. You heard it here first, folks. You want to hear about the history that they don't teach you about in school? Come to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. And anybody in the Barbary States, let us know what they teach you. Stephen is very interested. Yes. All right. Well, I think that's all we have for you guys today. Thank you for joining us. If you want to reach out to me and Stephen, you can so at U.S. Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. And the next one will be entered into your podcatcher of choice automatically. And, of course, if you can, leave us a review. The captain would prefer it if it were five stars. And we want to wish you all fair winds and following sea. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. (laughs) 